Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode. Today, we'd like to dive into some detail about what it takes to become a doctor in the United States. Most people have a general idea of what it takes. You have to go to college, then medical school, then something called residency. But most people starting out in college don't really know any of the details. If you don't know exactly where you're going and how to get there, you're going to make more mistakes along the way. So let's dive in and talk about specifically what it takes to become a doctor. By the way, this is just a general overview. We will go into more detail on each topic in some of the future episodes. Okay, Dr. Marina, sounds great. A great introduction to our college students. So I think a big question is always, what is actually the difference between an MD doctor and a DO doctor? Sure. So there are two types of medical schools in the U.S., allopathic medical schools and osteopathic medical schools. If you go to an allopathic school, you become a medical doctor or an MD. If you go to an osteopathic medical school, you become a doctor of osteopathy or a DO. So if you've ever gone to a doctor's office and you look at their badge, the badge of the doctor who's seeing you, you're either going to see one of those titles, MD or DO. There are other types of practitioners too, like nurse practitioners and physician assistants. But when it comes to being an independently licensed doctor, it's either an MD or a DO. There are about 154 MD programs in the U.S., but only 37 DO programs. That means that it's actually more competitive to get into a DO program because there are less of them. However, if you look at the GPA and MCAT score averages for each one, it's a little bit lower for getting into a DO program than it is for an MD program. Today, about 25% of medical students attend osteopathic schools to become DO doctors. And the major difference between these is that DO schools take a more holistic approach to health. They emphasize the connection between mind, body, and spirit. DO students also complete about 200 hours of training in something called osteopathic manipulative medicine, which is a hands-on approach to treatment of many conditions. So they actually learn how to lay their hands on the patients and manipulate tissues in different ways in order to help with a variety of conditions. So whether you're a DO or an MD, the basics of the process are pretty much the same. You have to get a college degree. You have to take certain science and other classes. You have to take the medical college admissions test, do four years of medical school, and complete a residency. Some of the exams you take during medical school and residency are a little different, though. So in your program, when you were um, in residency, did you work with or have any attendings or or other residents that were DOs? As I know, Dr. Marina is an MD, so that's why I asked this question. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In fact, thinking back, um, I worked with a couple of DO doctors that were just absolutely wonderful. They pretty much knew all the same stuff I did. They had taken similar tests. Uh, We did exactly the same thing through residency. 
Uh, one of them went on to become a NICU attending or a neonatal ICU doctor taking care of premature babies. And another one went on to become an allergist. So really, you can do just as much with a DO degree in your medical career as you can with an MD. How about you, Dr. Zuma? Do you know any DOs? Yes, actually, some of my closest friends uh, that I made in residency are actually DOs. And again, just like you said, um, it's, it's, it's the same. So whether you go the MD or DO route, the outcome is essentially the same. You practice the same. Your expectations are the same. Um, and same career, same jobs. Um, so either way, you don't go wrong. Um, and I think whether you do MD or DO programs, you'll be very well prepared to be a physician. Exactly. All right, Dr. Marina. So um, can you tell us a little bit about what a primary care doctor is versus a specialist? I think when I was in college, I kind of just lumped all of doctors together um, I didn't really understand the difference between the two. Definitely. That's a great question. I didn't understand the difference either. I, so this is a great question. So when you're thinking of becoming a doctor, it helps to think about whether you want to become a primary care doctor or a specialist. Now, you don't have to know that starting out, but just it's just helpful to know the difference. So what is the difference? You can think of a primary care doctor as your main doctor. So this is the person you go to for your yearly checkups and management of most chronic conditions like high blood pressure or diabetes. Some primary care doctors also feel comfortable treating conditions like depression or anxiety or prescribing medication like birth control pills. Primary care doctors include doctors who train in internal medicine, which focuses on adults, pediatrics, which focuses on kids up to age 18 approximately, and family medicine, which combines adults, children, and also pregnant women. So if you go see your primary care doctor for a problem that they can't help you with, they might refer you to a specialist. For example, if you've been having headaches and nothing you try is working, your doctor might refer you to a neurologist who specializes in brain disorders like migraines. Specialists typically focus on one organ system. For example, a cardiologist focuses on the cardiovascular system, which includes the heart and blood vessels. A pulmonologist focuses on the respiratory system, which includes the lungs and air passages. An endocrinologist focuses on the endocrine system, which includes all of the glands in your body that produce hormones like the thyroid gland in your neck. A psychiatrist focuses on treating mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, addictions, and personality disorders. An orthopedic surgeon focuses on the skeletal system, which includes all of the bones of your body. So there are a lot of different specialties. I can't list all of them. And we'll be interviewing doctors from a variety of these specialties so you can learn more about what each of them do. Sounds great. So. Um... Yes, what, what Dr. Marina said is correct. So uh, what you will find is um, a lot of students and yourself, when you start medical school, you might not know necessarily which type of doctor you want to be. If you want to be a primary care doctor or you want to specialize in something, something that's more specific, um, that's why medical school exists. Um, you get exposed to a lot 
And you'll also have the opportunity to rotate through these different specialties to see if there is one that catches your eye or your attention and you you click with it. So you don't have to know exactly which one you want to do. Uh, the other thing that I think I saw often is there's students that go in thinking they want to do a certain uh, specialty or primary care. And along the way, that interest actually shifts because you are exposed to something else and you find a keen interest to it. So as for myself, um, I, I, I wanted to be a pediatrician or a psychiatrist, so I was not sure which of the two I wanted to do in medical school. I rotated through both, enjoyed both, but at that point is where you make that decision of where you actually see yourself in five or ten years, if that's something that you'll be passionate about. Uh, today, I'm a pediatrician and I enjoy it, and just like Dr. Marina said, you do the primary care, but we're also involved if young girls want birth control and mental health issues. So I get my psychiatric interest component in primary care, at least. So that way, that's that's something I'm interested in. Um, so again, you don't have to know when you're going to start medical school. Just get there, and then you'll figure that part out. I don't know how exactly he was, Dr. Marina. Yeah, um, similar. I actually had a feeling that I wanted to do pediatrics going into medical school, um, but I kept an open mind during my third year rotations, and I really tried to imagine myself in each of those specialties. Um, and some I just really didn't like. For some reason, I didn't like obstetrics, which is like delivering babies. But I really liked taking care of the babies and the kids afterwards. So everybody just gets a different feeling when they rotate through the specialties. I've known some people who thought they really wanted to do surgery and then they rotated through it and decided, you know what, this is not for me. So you can change your mind. You don't have to be committed to a particular field, although it helps to have an idea of what's out there. Sounds good. Uh, I hope that kind of gives, uh, for all of you who are listening, gives you an idea of what the differences are. And I think more than anything, what we want you to take from it is that you don't have to know necessarily which type of doctor you want to be when you apply to medical school. You'll, you'll figure it out along the way. So then the next question that I have for you, Dr. Marina, is just the competition that's involved in getting into medical school. I know a lot of uh, college students, and even when I was a college student, I just was so scared of even trying to apply because I thought, why apply? I'm not even going to get in. So just if you can talk a little bit about the competitiveness that's involved in the application process. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a concern for a lot of students. A lot of students, they don't even think of becoming doctors because they know it's so competitive. And sometimes um, that can turn people away unnecessarily. Um, some students, for example, will, well, they won't even aim for medical school. They'll just say, oh, I want to be a physician assistant or a nurse or a nurse practitioner. Um, and it's true that the process is competitive, but that shouldn't be your only reason for not pursuing this path. It just means you have to work hard. And if you're willing to work hard, please, please, please add medical school <laughs> to your list of goals. So, um, Let's go over the competitiveness a little bit more in detail. As we know, it can be really competitive. Let's look quickly at the numbers. 
So for MD schools in the year 2020, there were about 53,000 students who applied and only about 22,000 got in. That means that 42% or 42 out of 100 students who applied were accepted. For DO schools, and the latest numbers were available in 2018, there were about 22,000 students who applied and only about 7,500 got in. That means 35% or 35 out of 100 students who applied were accepted. The average college GPA for getting into an MD school is 3.6 and the average college GPA for a DO school is 3.5. So a little lower for DO schools, but still pretty high. The average MCAT score for MD schools was 511 and for DO schools, it was 504. And you don't really need to know what those numbers mean, but it's a little higher for MD schools compared to DO schools. Even though GPA and MCAT scores are important though, there is no magic GPA or MCAT score that will get you into medical school. Even if you have a college GPA of 3.9 and an MCAT score of 520, which is really good, your chances of getting in are only about 90%. That means that medical schools really do care about who you are as a person and your commitment to being a doctor, not just your grades and test scores. It's important to note that if you don't get accepted your first time around, you are allowed to reapply. In fact, lots of people reapply. Just realize that it means more time and more money, but it may very well be worth it for you. Yes, definitely agree. I think from my experience, when I applied, I didn't have that average GPA from college and I didn't have the average MCAT score either. So that's the reason why I had even questioned whether I should apply that first time around versus just retry again that second year. But after talking to a friend, she encouraged me to apply with not meeting the average scores. And fortunately, I was able to get into a postback program through that. Uh, but I did end up getting interviews, which I thought I was not. And I got interviews to most of the schools I applied to. Um, I will say I, I have a lot of friends who are physicians now and they're great physicians. They had to apply twice to get in. They didn't get in the first time around. So Again, just like Dr. Marina said, if this is a career that you're really passionate about and you really do want to be a doctor, we encourage you, don't give up the first time around. Go ahead and apply the, the second time as well. And I'd like to add, I recently actually worked with a scribe and she didn't get in the first time around and was really bummed about it. And I told her about my experience with my friends and even my own personal experience. And she tried again this year and she's, she got in this time around. So that's just an example of being persistent if you're truly passionate about this career pathways. So don't give up the first time around. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that because um, it is competitive. I also didn't have the average GPA. In fact, because I had struggled and had to retake some classes in college, that science GPA was not looking great. <laughs> but, you know, they do look at the trajectory of your grades. They look at your transcript and they're able to see if you started out struggling your first or second year and you got a lot better over the course of the 
following years, they do take that into consideration. Um, however, schools do have some cutoffs. So when they're considering who to interview, um, they do sometimes have cutoff scores just because they get so many applications. It's a way to kind of cut down the number of people they're considering. So if you have less than a 3.0 or 3.1, something in that arena, you might not even get into you know the second stage of the application process. So we'll talk more about that in a future episode, but um, you know, just know you don't have to have the average. An average is just an average. That means you know you added everyone up and divided it to get that average score. But there are a range. Some people had lower, some people had higher. The average is just the middle of that. All right. So then um, the other common question, and I think a lot of first generation students think about the timeline of what it takes to be a doctor. I feel that a lot of high school kids um, or students, some of them want to be doctors and they think about well, is that going to take me really long? And then even for the college uh-huh. students as well. So let's talk a little bit about what the standard timeline is to be a physician. Great. So the most straightforward way to become a doctor is this. You go to college for four years. You go to medical school for four years. Then you do your residency training, which is anywhere from three to six or more years. So that means it will take approximately 11 to 14 years after high school to become a doctor. However, some people may take extra time to do other things. For example, to do some research, to do a post-baccalaureate program, to get a master's degree, or takes time off just to kind of recover from the stress of school in there. Also, if you want to do fellowship training after residency to become a specialist, that can add an additional number of years to your training. So in a previous episode, we went over what you have to do as a high school student um, to prepare for college. So if you haven't listened to that episode and you are a high school student, we encourage you to go back and listen to that. When it comes to college, um, let's talk a little bit about what you have to do in college to prepare yourself. So first of all, we really encourage you to make the most of your college experience. It's not just about taking classes and getting the good grades that you need. There are a lot of other things you can take advantage of during college. So, for example, extracurricular activities. Dr. Zulma, I think you told me at one point that you did a study abroad program. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so when I was uh, in college, I did the study abroad program, which was recommended by Um, a friend of mine who had just come back from Brazil to study abroad, I ended up applying to do a study abroad program in Spain. And the reason I chose Spain was because at that point I had declared a second major in Spanish literature, so would have been able to complete my course requirements there. It was absolutely one of the best experiences in my life till today. I met so many people. Uh, I got to travel, which is something coming from a low socioeconomic background is foreign. So the only place Uh I've ever gone to maybe two or three times while growing up was Mexico. And I live in California, so that's not too far. And it was to visit family. So going to Spain offered a lot of different types of experiences. I got to see the world and how big the world is. I got to meet people from different cultures. 
the program I did was within the UC, University of California system. So I got to meet many friends that came from all the different UC schools in California. So we are friends still today, yet we met in Spain. And while you are there, you're, you're also able to take time off to travel. So I got to travel a lot and go backpacking through Europe, which that was a whole nother set of experiences, but it was absolutely amazing. And I never thought that I would have ever had the opportunity to go to, to Europe. The other thing too is while the the other added benefit is while you're in college, if you do study abroad, I know the first thing that would always come up to my mind forefront was how am I going to pay this? How am I going to afford it? Uh, since I was limited with finances, well, financial aid will help you cover the costs when you do study abroad as well. So. What better way than to go ahead and experience something that's new and even consider learning a language if you want when you're picking which country you want to go to. Uh, that only helps you out in the long run anyhow, the more languages you know. And even as being a doctor, knowing many languages or experiencing different cultures allows a connection with your patients as well. I will tell you as a when you apply to medical school, there are many other applicants that studied abroad as well or did some type of work abroad. So it actually looks great on your on your application. And my thought is it looks great in the sense that you were able to leave something that was home to you to something that is foreign to you and you survived and you succeeded. And I think medical school and residency is like that. It's something that you've never experienced before. It's brand new. You figure out a way and you succeed. So I don't know if medical schools necessarily see it that way, but my feeling is I think that's what they can get from it with somebody who decides to do any work abroad. What about you, Dr. Marina? Yeah, so I didn't quite study abroad in terms of going to another country in and of itself. Um, I I um, was married at the time in my junior and senior years of college, and my husband was studying marine biology. So we decided to do a semester at sea program together where we went to um, Massachusetts and we studied oceanography on the campus there for six weeks. And then we spent six whole weeks out on the ocean on a sailing vessel. And we learned how to operate the sailing vessel, how to like actually, <laughs> you know, navigate by the stars and hoist the sails and all of that stuff. And we also learned oceanography and we're doing some oceanography research. And we traveled from Florida to Bermuda to Canada and then back to Massachusetts. So it was an incredible experience as well, even though it wasn't the traditional study abroad experience. But college opens up all of these doors to new experiences. So take advantage of that in college um, as much as you can, obviously. There's money involved and there are the requirements for your major, which you have to complete. But if you can take advantage of those opportunities, please do so. There are lots of other extracurricular activities. Even if you don't have the opportunity to travel for some reason, you can get involved in lots of activities outside of studying. Um, what were some of the extracurricular activities that you did during college, Dr. Zulma? So I did a lot of volunteering. Uh, so we would go out, help do even trash cleanups, uh, go help tutor kids. Go. Uh, we, I did a mentorship program the four years I was in 
in college where I was a mentor to a freshman uh, in high school that was close to the, the university where I went to. So again, there's a lot of different types of opportunities that you can do while you're there that it's outside of um outside of just doing the academics, I would encourage you, and I think I may have mentioned it in the previous podcast, when you are in college, keep a a notebook and document everything you do that's uh, an outside experience because you will forget when it comes to applying to medical school. So just make sure you're documenting it somewhere because you'll have to reproduce that information later on. Absolutely. That's a great piece of advice. Um, document things because it's easy to forget. And then when you do have to fill out your application, you have to include details like how many hours you did and people that can confirm that you did that experience. So it helps to keep track of those details so you don't forget. Yes. And don't forget to mention one other thing, Dr. Marino. When I was in college, I was very involved with the UC Riverside Ballet Folklorico. So that's Mexican traditional dance. We luckily had a group within our university. So I danced with the group for the four years. And that was really motivating for me because it was my escape from all the studying and exams. I looked forward to my practices with the group and my performances as well. So I kept that going on the side. It was part of the school, but it was on the side. And and I enjoyed it very much. So that's that was a big part of my life as well while I was completing my college requirements. That's great. What a wonderful experience. Another thing I want to mention is during college, don't think of college as just checking off things on a checklist. You do have to take certain classes, which we'll go into in just a second, to apply to medical school. But you want to get rid of that checklist mentality. Think of college as an opportunity to learn and grow and discover who you are. Um, Also try to distinguish yourself from other people that are applying to medical school. You know, pursue the things that actually interest you. Don't join a club or do some volunteer activity just because you think everybody who's applying to medical school is doing that activity, because then you're not going to distinguish yourself. You're going to look just like every other person. And medical schools actually want to attract a variety of different applicants who all show a passion for becoming doctors, but you can show that passion in lots of different ways. And they like to see that you're well-rounded too. They like to see that you're not just in the library studying all the time, but that you pursue other interests. In your case, for example, dancing. I also, during college, did a lot of different extracurricular activities, a lot of them through my church group, a lot of volunteer activities, tutoring through them. I also volunteered at a free clinic to get shadowing experience and worked as as an interpreter there. So that gave me the exposure to what it would be like to be a doctor. Um, Also gave me that language experience and was great overall. And that was something I really, really enjoyed doing. So your interests are going to be different and unique. Go ahead and pursue those interests in order to be able to show to an admissions committee that you're not just someone that sits in the library all the time. I 100% agree with that, Dr. Marina. Let's talk a little bit about the pre-med requirements, the the checklist. Yeah, definitely, (laughs) because there is that checklist to be sure. (laughs) So what are the pre-med requirements to apply to medical school? So these requirements vary by school. 
So not every medical school is going to require exactly the same things. You have to look at the AAMC website for MD schools, or if you're looking at DO schools, the AACOM website. Those are listed under the resources page on our website, so check those out if you haven't. But generally speaking, looking at most of the schools, most of them are going to require this. They require one year of biology, two years of chemistry, one year of physics, and one year of English. So those are the classes that you have to take. And um, they're going to look at both your science GPA and your non-science GPA. So the science GPA is going to include those biology and chemistry and physics courses, as well as anything else you might have taken for your major that was science. And the non-science GPA is going to look at like your English or literature or history or other classes. So they do care a little bit more about your science GPA in general, because when you're in medical school, you are going to be taking heavy science classes like biochemistry and microbiology. So they want to make sure that you can succeed in those kinds of classes. So as Dr. Marina said, those are your pre-med requirements. That's why you don't need to necessarily major in biology. If you complete those pre-med requirements and major in history, political science, whatever it may be, that's why you could still apply to medical school because they will consider the science GPA and then your overall GPA. So you can pursue any degree or any, any major you would like. You just have to complete the pre-med courses in order to apply to medical school. Great point. Yeah, I've known many people who went to medical school who majored in something totally different like history or philosophy or engineering. So don't feel limited by those classes. As long as you know that you can fit those in to your major, feel free to major in whatever you like. Mm -hmm. So next, um, medical schools also require some sort of shadowing experience. So what's shadowing? Shadowing is basically you're following a doctor around and watching what they do and observing basically like what their interactions with patients are like, what their day-to-day -day work is like. Why is this important? Because <laughs> you can't apply to medical school without knowing what it's going to be like to be a doctor. Medical schools want to know that you actually know what your career is going to be. So you wouldn't become a teacher without knowing what a teacher does, right? So just like that, you wouldn't become a doctor without really knowing what a doctor does every single day. And of course, there are different kinds of doctors. You don't have to know what kind of doctor you're going to be, but it helps to shadow some kind of doctor to understand like what it's actually like, you know, interacting with patients, what it's like diagnosing problems, what kind of procedures you might be able to do, the stresses of the job, as well as the really enjoyable parts of the job. Doctors nowadays spend a lot of time in front of computers because you have to document everything that you do into a computer system. So it's helpful to know, you know, that you're going to have to do a lot of that. So observing doctors is going to help you understand what you're getting into. I didn't have the opportunity to shadow a doctor while I was in college. But again, I wasn't sure that's what I wanted to pursue at that time. But I, I mean, Dr. Marina will talk a little bit more about other things you can do as well. Uh, but a great, a great idea for those of you nowadays is that there's a, a, a part-time job you can actually get and get the experience, which is called a scribe. 
what a scribe does is they are shadowing the doctor, but you are the person that's writing out the note for the visit. So as the doctor is talking to the patient, the scribe is documenting all the information and the dialogue that's going on within that visit. We didn't have that before when we were in college, but nowadays that's a great opportunity if you can do that where you can get a part-time job doing this and you will be very much exposed to what it is to be a doctor, what it takes. You'll be introduced to the terminology because that is part of the requirement in you being a scribe as well. And you'll also get an introduction to what medicine is as well. So I, I would encourage you if that is a possibility in the area where you live and apply to be a scribe. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. I've known many, many scribes who um, end up getting into medical school. And it's kind of like a, a two-in-one opportunity where you are doing it to earn money, but at the same time, you're getting that exposure. And so it's a way of accomplishing two goals with, through one job. Um, and I agree that it's a great experience if you have the opportunity to pursue it. So many schools, although not all schools, also require some research experience. Um, Some schools are really focused more on research. So for example, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, very heavily research focused. So if you're gonna be applying there, you're gonna have to have research experience, but not all schools have that requirement. So it varies. You have to look up the requirements for the schools that you want to consider and figure that out for yourself. That being said, a lot of medical school applicants do have something when it comes to research. It could have just been like a summer, you know, working in a laboratory doing a a research project. It doesn't have to be years and years, but um, it's a good experience if you're considering going into a science heavy career like medicine. It's helpful to know if at some point in the future, you want to just be a clinician, like who's in clinic all the time seeing patients versus you want to be a clinician scientist who sees patients some of the time and does research some of the time, or some doctors even go on to just do research completely. So that varies, like I said, by school, but it can be helpful in like knowing what your interests are. So Dr. Marina, what are some of the research experiences you had when you were in college? Yeah, so um, I during my senior year, I think, of college, I took an immunology class, and I got to know the professor who, was do, who had her own immunology research lab on campus. And so I ended up taking a year off between graduating from college and starting medical school. During that year, I applied and everything, but I also volunteered to do research in her lab. So some research experiences are paid, some are volunteer. (laughs) This was volunteer, unfortunately, just because of the situation, but I also did a part-time job to earn money on the side tutoring. But yeah, so I was able to basically spend a lot of time in the laboratory understanding, you know, the mouse models that were used for her research. Um, helping extract cells um, that were needed from the blood cells of the mice to do research experiments, how to um, prepare a lot of the solutions that were needed in the research projects. And just, you know, I just learned a lot about research. I wasn't 
myself focused on a particular research project. I was assisting the people in the lab with their research projects because that's kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to explore what it's like to work in a lab. I didn't want to commit myself necessarily to a research project, although in retrospect, that might have been helpful, (laughs) but it was still great experience. And I actually learned from that experience that lab research, like primary bench research, wasn't really my cup of tea. And I had an issue with, you know, killing animals as well. (laughs) So I learned that about myself. And um, I haven't really pursued much of that kind of research since then. Um, But it was a really useful experience. um, And I learned a lot. Some of the research that I did is I didn't do any of the lab bench work, as uh, Dr. Marina said. I was a psychology and Spanish literature major. So my research was more in psychology and I took an interest in understanding or trying to understand the relationship with race, study habits, and and understanding the best way children can learn, and children of color, that is. I did some research with the topic of stereotype threat, assisted a graduate student with that. And the other type of research that I did was within the UC school, University of California school, but I'm sure other schools across the country may have something similar, which I would encourage you to look into, is I came across a program that we had within the UC system called UCDC, and that stands for University of California District of Columbia Internship Program. I applied to that program and fortunately got in. And uh, again, I was able to use some scholarships and also financial aid to fund this. And what they did is they would have us connect with somebody uh, to do a research project. And it would have to be in the D.C. area. They had a center there where they would send us there. And it was almost a dorm-like building. And that's where we would live and work out of. I ended up doing that program, but I also found a program called HACU, Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities, that still exists. So please look into it. Again, it's H-A-C-U, Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities. And their focus is to connect you and match you with an internship program. So they assisted in in matching me, and I ended up getting matched with a a cardiovascular program at the National um, Heart and Lung Blood Institute in Bethesda, Maryland for NIH. So uh, it was a wonderful opportunity, a great opportunity as well. And I spent a semester working for them. And again, it was doing research, but also helping them put together a program. And my focus was for Latino cardiovascular health. And it was a wonderful experience. Again, it helped my application uh, when I applied to medical school. So there's a lot of opportunities out there. You just have to do a little bit of digging. So just make sure you look into that as well. And I'd like to add a lot of the internships and research are non-paid. With Haku, it's actually a paid internship as well. So that helped me financially too. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Yeah, it sounds like you had some great experiences there. And, you know, your experience and my experience make the point that there isn't just one way to do research. There's social science research. There's primary bench research. There's clinical research. And so, you know, if you don't like the idea of spending your time like in a lab with like a pipette and test tubes, you don't have to do that kind of research. It really is up to you. You just have to kind of explore the opportunities available to you. 
So moving on, let's talk a little bit about the personal statement. So another requirement to getting into medical school is writing a personal statement. And this is about a one page essay that explains why you want to be a doctor. So during college, it's helpful to really think about this question because you're going to have to explain it when you apply to medical schools. Like why is it that you are motivated to become a doctor? And what do you envision your future as a doctor to look like? You don't have to write it while you're in college. You don't have to write it until you apply, but it really helps to think about this question. And how are you going to communicate your why to medical schools? So keeping a journal, like you mentioned, you know, in that journal that you're keeping with all of your extracurricular and volunteer activities, it's helpful to write down, like maybe you volunteered at a homeless shelter or at a free clinic, or you had an international experience um, and you had a really deep or personal experience that made you reflect on what motivates you to be a doctor write that down, you know, reflect on it in your journal. That way, when it comes time to writing this personal statement, you can look back on those experiences and what you thought at the time and have something to think about to include in your personal statement. Definitely agree with you, Dr. Marina. I think also when you are writing this personal statement, just as Dr. Marina said, you don't want to have just a standard essay. Many, many people are applying everybody is saying, I want to be a doctor. So generally, they get a lot of essays that say, I want to help people. Uh So you want to really be able to, as Dr. Marina said, reflect, go in deep. So that way you can stand out when somebody is reading it, that they want to meet you, they want to come and see you. And this takes time to really think about it and brew with it. It might be a personal experience that you had even. It might be non-medical, but you tie it in to why you want to be a doctor. It could be a personal experience that's medical. As far as for myself, when I wrote my first statement, it was very general. And I remember the person I reached out to, they said, well, you sound just like everybody else. We need to change this. Do something that really reflects who you are. And I had to really think about myself. And if somebody were to read something, how can I show them this is who I am? And I ended up, because as I said earlier, ballet folklorico and dance had been such a huge part of my life. It had been my escape. It had been an area of growth for me because every time I would perform, I would get so nervous. It's almost all those fears I had would be there, but I would pull through with it. And after I finished a performance, it was almost my sense of I completed it, I did it, I was able to overcome that fear. So I was able to write about my dancing and everything that I felt in connecting it to wanting to be a doctor. I did that somehow, but it was able to really highlight something that's deep to me. It's meaningful to me. It helped because I think it helped make me stand out. I don't know how what you wrote about with uh, Dr. Marina. Uh, I don't know that I can remember entirely, but I think I did um, tie my essay to my experiences of growing up, not having health insurance, you know, not seeing a doctor until I was about 14 years old and talking about my personal background. So I kind of wove that story of my upbringing with, you know, my motivation to become a doctor and to specifically become a doctor that serves underserved populations. So, um, everyone's journey, everyone's story is going to be different, but find something about your story that ties into why you want to be a doctor. I think stories are very powerful 
to communicate something about you. So we'll probably have a future episode focusing on personal statements. I don't want to go into too much length here. But our point is that you have to start thinking about why you want to be a doctor and how you're going to communicate that to other people while you're in college. And the more you think about it and reflect on it, the better prepared you will be for applying and for interviewing as well. All right. So moving on one more, uh, a couple more things that you have to do and think about during college. Next one is letters of recommendation. So every medical school is going to require that you ask two or three or even four, it depends on the medical school, people to submit letters of recommendation for you. So these have to be people that have gotten to know you well enough during your college experiences to actually write a letter of recommendation. If it's just a professor in a huge class that you took and you never went to office hours and you never talked to them personally and you just did okay in the class, or even if you just got an A, but they never got to know you personally, that's going to be hard. That's going to be a hard person to ask (laughs) to actually write a letter because they don't know you that well. Now, if it was like a professor in a small seminar that you took and there were only 10 or 20 people and they read all of your essays and they really got to know you in terms of academic ability and interests and um, ability to grow and learn, then that's going to be someone better to ask for a letter of recommendation. Also, if you end up doing research like we talked about in a lab and your um, primary investigator, your PI gets to really know you, that's another great person to ask as long as it was a good experience (laughs) and they're going to write good things about you. Yeah. So what about what about you, Dr. Zuma? Do you remember who you ended up asking for letters of recommendation? I ended up asking uh, professors since I did a, a different route. I ended up completing my pre-med after I graduated for a couple of classes, and I took them at a community college. They're a lot smaller class sizes, so I got the opportunity to really get to know all of my science professors, and they were the ones that mainly wrote a letter. And I also had some letters from jobs I had along the way and people that I had kept in touch with as well. So Mm -hmm. just create relationships. I would advise students and there's a lot of uh, professors and sometimes even counselors or or whatever it might be that you end up clicking with. You want to just maintain that relationship so that way you can ask that person if they can write a letter recommendation since they get to personally know you and they can really personalize the letter. Yeah, that's the key. You want to know, you want to ask someone who personally knows you well enough to really write something specific because people who are reading the letters they can tell if it's just like a generic letter versus if it's just if it's a letter from someone who really knows you yeah so again uh, bringing up the scribe if you end up having the opportunity to work as a scribe the the doctor that you end up working with will likely write you a good letter recommendation because you work so closely with that physician yeah all right, last thing here, the MCAT. So the, the dreaded MCAT, that stands for Medical College Admissions Test. So this is, it's kind of like the SAT or ACT that you have to take to get into college. This is the test that you have to take to get into medical school. It's a test of your knowledge in all of those uh, required classes. So biology and chemistry and physics and verbal comprehension. So um I think it's an eight-hour test. Is that right, Dr. Zulma, currently? It's a full-day test. It's a full-day test. Yeah, it's a long one. So 
Um, a lot of preparing for this exam is, well, obviously knowing the material, but also just developing the stamina, like taking practice tests that are going to help you to even be prepared to take a test that's that long. You know, it takes a lot of concentration, focus, energy to sit and do a test for eight hours. So taking practice tests is going to be important for that. And of course, just studying the material for the test. Lots of people choose to take test prep courses through places like Kaplan. Um, and those can be expensive, but they can prepare you pretty well to take the test. But a lot of it is just like doing practice questions, getting back to the basics of what you studied in organic chemistry and biology and physics in order to remind yourself of the material that's going to be on that test. You have to take it seriously. It's about a $300 exam. So, you know, not only is it expensive, but the more times you take it, you can take it multiple times, but the more times you take it, it doesn't look that great on your application. So take it seriously. Try to do your best the first time around. You can retake it if you need to. But save yourself time and money by just really trying to do as well as you can the first time around. Yes, and I'd like to add to that as well. There are programs, especially for minority students, designated to helping you study for the MCAT. Uh, the AAMC had a program, and I believe they still have it. It's called the Summer Medical Education Program. It's geared towards uh, minority students. And if you apply, they send you to a university and you attend classes every day to study for the MCAT. And it's a it's like half a day of studying. They provide some materials for you. They do practice exams. So it was something that was great that I did. And also, again, they help you pay for the airfare and to stay there if you if you, could, you have to apply to the program and then get accepted. I ended up going to UMDNJ in Newark, New Jersey, and I stayed on their campus in the dorms along with other students who had applied for the program. And they gave me some books and supplies uh, to study for the MCAT. And we also attended classes and got to know some doctors that were also minor minorities that would help us study and give us some feedback. And I thought that was pretty amazing because I was in a huge auditorium with a lot of minority students who all wanted to be doctors. A lot of us were first generation as well. So our parents either had not gone to college or there was no doctors in the family. So it was a really nice environment. And the, prof and the, the doctors who taught us were also first generation physicians themselves, and they talked about their own journey. So it was very interesting. So there's a lot of programs. You just have to look it up and um, and see what's out there. Because as Dr. Marina said, a lot of the MCAT study programs are very pricey. So there, there are other options as well. Definitely. Yeah. So look for what's available. Ask around what's available in your area, in your college, because there are programs throughout the country to help with this kind of thing. So let's talk a little bit about just the process itself of applying to medical school. So you've finished college, you've done all the stuff required to apply. So when and where and how do you actually apply? So most, well, not most people, but a lot of people apply during their senior year of college, but you don't have to. 
more and more people are taking some time off between college and medical school just to kind of not have to be applying and taking classes at the same time, or maybe in order to do a post-bac program or to do some research or to earn some money. So there's no single way to do it, but definitely you have to do it during your senior year or after. Um, if you are going to take some time off after college to apply or do something else, try to do something that contributes to your application. So a clinical job or a scribe, like Dr. Zola mentioned, or research or graduate school or postback program. So do something that's applicable. If you go and you're like, it's not like you can't do this, but if you go and you're like a ski instructor for a year, that's fun. <laughs> that's great. And you're earning money, but you're not really doing anything to show your commitment to becoming a doctor, if that makes sense. Now, if you did like a lot of amazing things during college and you already have a really impressive resume and MCAT score and everything else, and you're not worried about that, that's up to you. But if you're worried about um, getting into medical school and being competitive, then really try to focus on something that's going to make your application look better. I 100% agree with you. So um, the application process itself is a, usually a centralized process. It's through the AMCAS or the AA Comes website, depending on if you're applying to an MD or a DO school. So it's like one electronic application that you submit. And the application opens up like many months before it's due. So remember, there's a lot of stuff to submit. You have to submit your transcripts. You have to submit your MCAT scores. You have to submit your letters of recommendation. You have to submit your personal statement. You have to submit a summary of all of your volunteer and extracurricular and work and research activities. So they give you many, many months to start getting that stuff together. Make sure you do not wait until the last minute. If you're only giving yourself a week or a month, that's not enough time unless you have nothing else to do. <laughs> but um, when it comes to asking for letters of recommendation, for example, it looks really bad if you go to your professor and say, hey, I need this by tomorrow they're going to laugh at you. you. They can't do that that quickly. So you have to give your letter writers plenty of time. You have to give yourself plenty of time to write your personal statement because lots of times your first draft is not going to be great. <laughs> plan to have someone read it and edit it and plan to do multiple drafts in order to get the best personal statement you can because it is so important as part of your application. So give yourself plenty of time. Take it seriously. Start early. Do you have anything to add to that? No. Okay. Moving on to medical school. Briefly, let's talk about what happens once you get into medical school. First, you celebrate because that is such a huge accomplishment. <laughs> but after that, what does medical school and residency look like? How much does all of this cost? All of that. So in medical school, it's sort of two phases. The preclinical years, which is your first two years, and your clinical years, which are years three and four. During your preclinical years, you're mostly taking classes like physiology, anatomy, microbiology, biochemistry, pharmacology. So you're doing a lot of like studying, spending time at the library, taking tests. At the end of your first two years, you're going to take an exam called the USMLE Step 1 or United States Medical Licensing Exam Step 1. That's going to be a test of all of your knowledge that you've gained during those first two years. And it's going to be a prerequisite, generally speaking, to moving on to your third year. So it is a pretty stressful exam. 
People take like one or two or even three months to study for it. You have to review everything you've learned during those first two years. But most people, you know, take it, they pass it, they move on. And the occasion that you don't pass it, you are allowed to retake it in order to move on. Then your clinical years, those are years three and four. In your third year, you have to take certain core rotations or clerkships. Those include, generally speaking, internal medicine, psychiatry, obstetrics and gynecology, pediatrics, psychiatry, and surgery. And usually you have some sort of longitudinal, um, which is like one afternoon per week experience in family medicine that you're also doing at the same time. It's exposing yourself to all of the major specialties, and that's really the opportunity that you have to figure out what it is you want to do. So if you thought you wanted to do surgery and you rotate through surgery and you love it, and maybe you rotate through plastic surgery and you really love that, then you have a better idea of what path you want to pursue from there. For Dr. Zulma and I, we rotated through pediatrics and we realized that that is what we really wanted to do. So that's the path that we took. Then year four, you're able to have a little bit more flexibility. It's not required rotations, it's elective rotations. So you get to choose for the most part which rotations you do. So let's say you think you really want to be a dermatologist, but during your third year, dermatology was not one of the rotations. Then that's the chance where you get to spend a couple of weeks rotating on a dermatology service. Um, Or let's say for me, for example, I knew I wanted to do pediatrics, but during my third year, it was just the general pediatrics rotation. And so I got a chance during my fourth year to rotate through pediatric emergency medicine and pediatric surgery and pediatric psychiatry. So that, that's really the chance where you get to kind of specialize more based on your interests. Yeah. And you can also do that year away rotation. So uh, since the next part is thinking about residency and where you want to go, doing an away rotation at a hospital or medical center that is of interest to you might be good. So say you already know you want to do surgery and there's a medical center that you would love to go to, you request to see if you can do a rotation, which is about a month long, and you go to that medical center and rotate through it. And it's a good way for you to get a feel of the program to see if, it, if you would like it and also if they like you as well because it can give you a leg up when it comes to applying for residency. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So during your fourth year, another thing you're going to have to do is apply to residency. There's something called the National Residency Match Program. So you get a chance to look at all of the different residencies and the specialty that you want to apply to. Decide how many programs you're going to apply to. Go ahead, submit your application. It's just kind of like the medical school application system. There's an electronic application that you have to fill out. You have to get letters of recommendation. You have to submit a personal statement, all of that stuff. And you get to apply to as many programs as you want to. Um, And then if they like you, they will request an interview. And then it's, again, like the medical school application process. If you get an interview, you travel to the school, you get to see their program. They get to see if they really like you. You get to see if you really like them. Um, And at the end of those interviews, Um, you get to rank the programs. So let's say I interviewed at five programs, then I'm going to have to number those programs one through five. One is going to be my top choice and five is going to be my last choice. And then that goes all into a computerized system 
um, where the programs also do the same thing. They rank the applicants in terms of their top choice to their last choice. And so the computer algorithm that they have basically maximizes the top choices of the programs and the top choices of the applicants and matches everybody to a program. <laughs> so it's a little bit complicated, but it's basically trying to make it the best for both the applicants and the programs based on their choices. So there's something called match day at the end of your fourth year, and everybody gets together. Family members are invited as well. Um, and everybody gets to open a special envelope <laughs> where you find out where you matched to. So this is generally a pretty happy day. Most people match. Um, Although it is possible not to match to a program, and that's a separate issue we'll explore later, but um, you find out where you're going to spend the next three to six years of your life in the, on this match day. All right. Now, moving on, the other big question, Dr. Marina, is how much does medical school cost? That is a great question, Dr. Zoma. So, you know, you have to kind of look at the costs of everything along the way. So the cost of college, the cost of applying to medical school, the cost of medical school itself, how much you're going to be making during residency, how much you're going to be making as an attending. But let's look at the basics of what it costs. So for college, it depends on what kind of college you go to. If you start out at a community college, that costs about $5,000 per year on average in the United States. If you go to an in-state public university, that's going to be about $26,000 per year. If you go to an out-of-state public university, that costs about $43,000 per year. And at a private university, that's going to be the most expensive option on average, about $55,000 per year currently. When it comes to applying to medical school, just the application process, like submitting your, your applications on average is about $3,500. And that's for an average of 20 schools, but that does not include travel to interviews. Um, so if you happen to know a lot of people throughout the country, you can save money on like staying with friends or staying with family, but you do have to buy a lot of plane tickets. So that can add up when it comes to medical school on average, the four years of attending a public medical school is $250,000. That's a lot of money. <laughs> and if you attend a private medical school, it's even more money. It's an average of $340,000. Wow, that's like as much as buying a house for a lot of people. <laughs> so this is not a decision to be taken lightly. However, as a doctor, you will be able to pay that back. So don't let just the price tag be a deciding factor. Even if you're a pediatrician like us, pediatricians make the least amount of money of all the specialists, <laughs> you will be able to pay that back. So don't worry too much about that at this point. The average student debt after medical school is currently about $200,000. So the average student comes out owing that much money. But like I said, they will be able to pay it off. So in terms of residency, um, you do start getting paid as a resident. It, you're no longer paying for your education. This is the point at which you start getting paid. The average first-year resident salary is $56,000 per year plus benefits. And it goes up a little bit each year for each year that you complete. So as a third year, you make a little bit more than a second year and each year it goes up a little bit. Now, there are some public service programs that you can pursue if you want help paying for medical school. There's the National Health Service Corps program and there are programs through the military, the Air Force, and also various state repayment programs. 
So the National Health Service Corps and military programs, those are going to offer, they're going to offer to pay for all of your medical school tuition and books and expenses, including living expenses. But at the end of that time, you're going to owe them back. So if they paid for two years of medical school for you, you're going to owe them two years of working for them after residency, and they can send you wherever they want. (laughs) Um, That's the downside. Um, If they pay for four years, then you owe them four years and so on. If you don't do one of those programs from the outset, then once you are out and you owe a lot of money, there are programs through many different states that help you to repay the loans if you agree to work for a certain clinic or hospital. So there are lots of different options there. I actually got help from the state of California repaying my loans because I was working for a community health center and I had to apply for it, um, but I ended up getting quite a lot of assistance in repaying my loans. Any thoughts, Dr. Zuma? Yeah, I did the same. I did a lot of the programs through the state and they do help repay. And also keeping in mind the numbers that Dr. Marina said, they are averages. Uh, So you can get out of medical school uh, owing less. And that really depends on the effort you put into doing scholarships, as uh, we've mentioned in a previous podcast. So you can also apply for many scholarships while you're in college as well. And then if you, when you're in medical school too, that can help offset some of these costs. And then afterwards, if you work for certain clinics or medical centers, you can get these uh, loan repayment programs that will pay off your loans to help you pay off your loans. Absolutely. I know a lot of people are probably wondering, okay, you're telling me that I can pay off these loans. How much do I actually make as a doctor? So let's look at averages. This is from a Medscape survey done in 2020 of tens of thousands of doctors in the United States. So on average, remember we talked about primary care doctors versus specialist doctors. So for primary care doctors, the average salary in the United States is $243,000 per year. For specialists, the average is $346,000 per year. So that sounds like a lot of money, right? Um, And it is. So one thing to know is that specialty matters. Pediatricians, for example, like Dr. Zulma and I, make an average, again, this is an average, of about $230,000 a year. On the other hand, on the high end of the spectrum, orthopedic surgeons, which are also known as bone surgeons, they make an average of about $510,000 per year. So there's a definite difference depending on what specialty you choose. You can make less, generally speaking, as a primary care doctor, unfortunately, or more as a surgeon or specialist. Unfortunately, I have to mention your sex also matters. Men make about 25% more than women do in primary care, and men make 30% more than women do in specialties. The reasons for this are complicated, but we're pretty sure sexism is a big part of it. Um, Another thing is that the setting you work in matters. So you might be able to earn more money if you're in a private practice where you are an owner of the practice compared to a public hospital or clinic. But it just, it depends. There are so many different types of jobs. Um, It also matters where you live. So if you live in a place like New York City, that's really expensive. Um, salaries there are going to be different compared to like a rural area of the United States. Most of these numbers are for working full time. So if you don't want to work the 50 to 60 hours per week, that's generally considered full time, then you need to take that into account. You might be working less. So I don't make a full time salary because I don't work 
full-time just because that's what I decided was best for me at this point in my life. But in the past I did, and I made more money because of it. So in order to get to medical school, then Dr. Marina, is there a set way that the students would have to take? I've heard about the traditional versus non-traditional pathways. Can you talk maybe a little bit about that? Absolutely. So basically, not everyone knows they want to be a doctor when they're in college. Um, Not everyone goes to college right after high school. Life situations vary quite a bit. Some people need time to really figure out what their goals are in life, while other people know right away what they want to do. I have a couple of friends who were teachers before they decided to go to medical school. I have another friend who went to law school and was a lawyer for a while before he decided to change careers and become a doctor. Um, I also knew one woman who was in her 50s when she was a medical student. I know people who were already married and had kids in medical school and many women who have had children during medical school residency. So there's not one way to become a doctor. You don't have to know when you're a senior in high school or when you're a freshman in college that you want to be a doctor. Life is different for everyone. So even if you don't go the traditional way and do all your pre-med requirements at college and apply after college, there are still ways to make it into medical school. You still have to go back and complete all those requirements. Those friends who were teachers, what they ended up doing is they ended up finding post-baccalaureate programs or post-bac programs and went back to school, completed all their requirements, got all their you know activities and research and shadowing and all of that and then applied. So there's not just one way to do it. Just, you know, rest assured if you're older, or if you're struggling in college, or if you're already majoring in something else and planning a different career, just know that you can change course. Um, There's not just one way to become a doctor. I actually took the non-traditional pathway. So my majors were psychology and Spanish literature. It wasn't until after I graduated that I decided so I started working as an outreach uh, program manager and going to the local community college to complete the remainder of the pre-med courses. While I was working, I was doing a lot of healthcare outreach to the homeless, to migrant workers, and also got involved with the childhood obesity program. Once I completed my pre-med and then I did the MCAT, that's when I then applied to medical school. And for me, I wouldn't do it different even if versus traditional. Again, this is really dependent on who you are. I really enjoyed having that time, I guess you can say off, where I was going to school, I was working, but throughout that time I was traveling. My best friend lived on the other side of the United States, so doing a lot of travel to the East Coast here, seeing family in Mexico and so forth. So for me it offered at least that flexibility that you don't necessarily get for once you start medical school. So when I started medical school, I felt like I wasn't really missing out on what I did before. But again, this is very dependent on who you are as a person. So there is no right way to do it. Definitely. I agreed 100%. So this has been a lot of information, but we hope you find it helpful. We'll be posting a summary of the last episode for high school students, as well as this episode targeted more for college students on our website at futureminoritydoctor.com under the resources tab. 
We hope you found it helpful in one way or another. If you have questions or comments that you would like us to address in future episodes, please drop us a line through the contact us section of our website. We would love to hear from you. We love getting questions and comments. So we hope you found this helpful and we'll see you next time. Peace and love, everyone.